You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Hello. Good morning. So, um, Chip texted me yesterday. Uh, Chip Oosley, our youth pastor, in case you don't know when I just say Chip. Um, hey, Brian, can you or Chad do the announcements tomorrow? I have strep throat. <laughs> and we said, yes, please stay away. So please pray for Chad and in particular their children that they don't catch that. Yes, you know what I meant. <laughs> pray for Chad as well because <laughs> they all have to deal with me. So about 10 years ago, um, Morgan and I read this book that really, really changed our view and our approach to parenting called Shepherding a Child's Heart. And um, we actually have taught a couple classes of that book here, and I know many of you have read it and been impacted by it. Um, one of the things that really struck me and stood out to me when I read this book was my discovery of an approach to parenting that I, I never really knew it was out there and labeled, um, but I, I not only discovered it, but had to feel the guilt of, oh, yeah, that's kind of where I've lived until now. And, and the, the whole idea is called behavior modification. Um, and I want to share with you this morning um, a little bit of an example of the difference between behavior modification and actually biblically discipling your child or your children. Okay, so hang with me here. Let's, let's say that my family and your family, we're going to go out to eat. And uh, does everybody like Mexican food? I hope so. We're going to go to Rosie's. So we go to Rosie's, and uh, because you're with me, you will be seated next to the loudest child in the restaurant. That's just the way it works. So we go and we sit down, and here comes the family with their little five-year-old, Timmy. All right? And Timmy, he's in a bad way today. He just woke up from a nap. He doesn't want to be there. He doesn't like Mexican food. He thinks his sister's shirt is ugly. He wants to play on his mom's phone. All kinds of things are wrong. And so they get to their table, and he's banging his chair. He's slamming the salt and pepper shakers. And mom and dad are going, Timmy, you got to knock it off. Stop, stop, stop. And, you know, dad has been at work all day. And so dad's exhausted. Mom, however, has been at home with Timmy. So mom's Timmy meter is way past level 10. And so in just a, a mere search for sanity, what does mom finally do? She reaches into her purse and she grabs her phone and she pulls up Angry Birds and she sticks it there in front of Timmy and poof, it's like magic. All of a sudden, Timmy's quiet. And, and the restaurant silently praising God. <laughs> and so it's like problem solved, right? Wrong. Because you have to think about what's just happened. First of all, the next time Timmy wants to play Angry Birds, how is Timmy's brain going to tell him that he's going to get that done? I'm going to pitch a fit, slam salt shakers, go crazy. But not only that, something in this five-year-old subconscious has said, now, okay, now, wait a minute. I was disrespectful, disobedient, threw a fit, and not only was I not punished, I was rewarded. Aha. That's behavior modification. 
And the bottom line is all of us at some level, at some point as parents, we've been guilty of that. Sometimes it's out of exhaustion. Sometimes it's out of laziness. Sometimes it's out of lack of intent. But I'm, I'm grateful. I think more and more parents are beginning to understand all the time, not only is this not helping my child, it's quite possibly harming them. But so now let's look at the difference between behavior modification and discipleship. Let's go at this scenario one more time. Family sits down. Dad finally leans over to Timmy and says, hey, buddy, listen, um, I'm telling you right now, you need to be quiet. You need to calm down because there are other families and friends in this restaurant who they came here to have a peaceful meal, enjoy themselves, enjoy each other. And so you need to be quiet. You need to be respectful of them, and you need to be obedient to what I've asked you to do. Do you understand? Sure. And if you're not, you and I are going to have to leave the table and go have this conversation in another part of the restaurant. And Timmy knows what that means. And it's all good for 90 seconds. And then right back at it. And so dad says, come with me. And walks Timmy to the restroom. And first he says, Timmy, here's the deal, buddy. God has not only given me the authority as your parent, but the responsibility to train you in what's right and wrong. And you have deliberately disobeyed me. And so you're going to have to have a spanking. And right there, Timmy gets a spanking in the bathroom at Rosie's. That would not be the place I would pick to get a spanking. And it hurts. But then dad gets down on his knee. And yes, I realize he's in a bathroom. But he gets down on his knee, eyeball to eyeball with his son. And he says, hey, buddy, listen to me. I love you. And I need you to understand. God's word says that you are to obey me. That you are to respect what I've asked of you. God's word also says that I am responsible for training you in what's right and wrong. And you know in this instance what was right and what was wrong. And that's why you got a spanking because you deliberately did what was wrong. But here's the good news. We get another chance to go back to the table and do what's right. So let's, let's do that. My little scenario there was by no means perfect. But that's what it looks like. That, that's one example of I don't know how many we could come up with of what it looks like. That's hard work to disciple your child. But there is a vast chasm between behavior modification and discipleship. Someone's behavior being modified doesn't really matter or help if their heart isn't transformed. And if you read the Gospels in particular, you get into the book of Matthew, that's the essence of the Beatitudes. Moreover, the Sermon on the Mount, right? That Jesus is saying, you've, you've heard this said, and you've heard this said, and you've heard it said for good reason. But I've come to tell you that God actually even has a greater standard. Because he cares, yes, about your actions, but what he cares more about is that they are overflowing out of a heart that longs to please him. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Well, I say, don't even lust. You've heard it said, do not commit murder. Well, I say, don't even harbor anger in your heart. Jesus keeps drilling home, this is a heart issue. So the Apostle Paul comes along. And one letter after another, 
Paul keeps affirming that this whole idea and principle also spills over into our salvation. That salvation, make the connection that it is also an issue of the heart, not just of behavior modification. So we get into Galatians chapter 1. And a couple of weeks ago, um, we pointed out that not only in Galatians 1, but throughout the letter, there's this theme that runs through it. And the theme is Jesus plus what? Anyone? Nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That if I add anything to the gospel, I no longer have the gospel. These false teachers had come along and gone into the churches in Galatia. And to kind of put it in a a simple way, what they were teaching the Gentiles was you've got to become a Jew and then you can become a Christian. And Paul hears of this and writes this letter to expose, no, 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 that's a false gospel. Why is it a false gospel? Well, connect the dots with me here, because for a Gentile to start acting like a Jew, it's just behavior modification. And Paul writes this letter to say, no, no, Christ came to transform our hearts, not just change our behavior. And of course, last week, as Paul is defending his apostleship, we see him explain that God can redeem, save, and use anyone that he chooses, including you and me. And that brings us to Galatians chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible, join me. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. Paul writes, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. You'll remember that Paul said just earlier that he got saved. He spent three years preaching the gospel. Then he went up to Jerusalem to meet with Peter, and he hung out with Peter for like two weeks. And then all these other things occurred. Well, so now he's saying 14 years after that, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. It is almost certain that what we've just read Paul say here, that it is correlating to what goes on in Acts chapter 15. And I want to encourage you that this week, maybe take some time to not only go back and read Galatians 1 and then into chapter 2 where we're going to be this morning, but read Acts 15 along with it, and you will see how the events parallel one another. Paul went up to Jerusalem because of the Jerusalem council that was being held. And the reason why the Jerusalem council was formed was to address this issue that the Jewish legalists were bringing up, that a Gentile had to first become a Jew before they could become a Christian. Paul points out to us here in Galatians 2 that he wasn't summoned by anybody, like Peter didn't call for him or something. He was led by the Spirit and he was sent by the church. And again, you'll see that if you read Acts chapter 15. What he was seeking affirmation of, I believe, first and foremost, yes, he went up for the Jerusalem council, but you'll see that he says, 
I went up because of a revelation. And then he says, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Paul is saying, I want to make sure that the gospel that I am preaching and the gospel that Peter is preaching, that James is preaching, that actually James would be dead at this point, I believe already, that Matthew is preaching, the gospel that we who claim to be the apostles of Christ are preaching is the same gospel. He is seeking out unity and harmony in the gospel that they're preaching, and it's achieved at the Jerusalem Council. They affirm that is the gospel that we all believe. Now, while there, Paul gets the opportunity to to speak. You notice he says, I went up because of a revelation. And then he says, and I set before them. Paul gets to get up in front of the council. And and what he does is, is he says, first of all, here's the gospel that I preach. And he lays it out for them. And then he says, and every time that I preach it, people are coming to Christ. Not only that, Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. And they all show true, genuine evidence of salvation and conversion without being circumcised and without conforming to your dietary laws. So let's make very, very clear here. These Gentiles are coming to faith and they are sanctified and justified through faith in Jesus Christ alone, period, end of story. And that's what he lays out. Now, I love it. Paul takes the evidence along with him. He takes this young man named Titus. Look at verse 3. Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, a Gentile. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery again. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. It's not an accident that Paul takes Barnabas and Titus with him. He takes Barnabas because Barnabas is a very well-known Jew and Barnabas can attest to a couple of things. First of all, Barnabas can also affirm with Paul, I have seen these Gentiles come to faith in Christ, and I have completely seen the evidence that they are believers, they are Christians, without conforming to everything that the Jews are demanding of them. But Barnabas is also able to say, but I now in my own life have experienced the freedom that the Holy Spirit has brought, and it's an incredible thing. Paul brings Titus because Titus is a Gentile who all you have to do is watch his life and see his conversion and his salvation are real. So why is this going on? Why are the legalists, the Pharisees, the Judaizers, why are they in such an uproar and demanding? No, no, they can't just come to faith. They've got to conform to all of this as well. I think there were two big arguments that they kept pushing that were behind all of this. The first argument was this. You can't just preach the gospel. Because if you just preach the gospel and you don't also preach the law, people are going to walk 
in licentiousness. That's one of your favorite words, isn't it? Has anybody used the word licentiousness at any point in the last five years? I have not. But the reason why I use it this morning is because it's throughout the New Testament and it's important for us to understand it. What they were arguing is if you just preach the gospel and you don't keep demanding the law, um, people are going to completely abandon the rules. You look at the word licentious and you see the root word in there, license. It, it means to live like without a license. People are going to completely abandon the rules. If you remove the law, if you remove the fear of hell, if you remove the weight and the burden of guilt, if you take all of that out, people are just going to go crazy and live however they want to. You can't just preach the gospel. That's crazy. And the second argument would have been, the law is divine and holy. It's God's standard for his covenant people. So you can't just throw it out and do away with it. Well, the next few moments, I want to share with you that I believe that these two arguments, they only need one response. There's really only one answer, one response that we can give to both of these arguments. Now, before we get there, let me say this. The law has the ability to reveal, expose God's standard. Correct? The law has the ability to show us this is God's standard. And, and every time that you and I read the law, look at the law, and, and I read that I'm not supposed to lie, I'm not supposed to cheat, I'm not supposed to covet my neighbor's car or house or donkey. There's some good donkeys out there. I'm not supposed to foster jealousy. There are all of these things that God has said, do this, do this, do not do this, do not do this. At any point that I read the law, somewhere in there, I'm going to get punched in the face and, and realize, oh, I messed up again. Man. And why does that happen? Because the law has the right, the power, and the ability to expose what's wrong, what doesn't match up. The law has the power to show you and me very, very clearly that we're broken. But here's the thing. The law has no ability to fix us. None. It can keep revealing all over and over and over again how broken we are, but it can do nothing to fix us. Why? Because the law is the diagnostic. It's not the cure. The law is the diagnostic. It's not the cure. Let me explain what I mean. Anybody here ever had an MRI? There are that many of you who have not had an MRI? Wow. You need to go and do this just to experience the noises. Man, the noises. So, uh, I played volleyball for 15 years of my life, competitive, recreational, both. And um, I don't know if you know this or not, but your body is actually not made so that your arm is supposed to do this. And so doing this 
repetitively over and over, your shoulder is going, stop, please stop, help. And I did that for 15 years. Uh, Also, when I was in college and seminary, I remember very distinctly two occasions playing pickup basketball and running into this guy named Jason. Both times, Jason, completely different occasions. And, And my shoulder throwing out and then throwing back in. That's fun. That's one of those things that about 15 seconds later, you think, I might possibly throw up everything I've ever eaten. But Jason was about 6'4", 230, and as you can tell, I was not. And so my shoulder lost that head-on battle. And then I've lifted weights on and off for uh, several years, um, as you can obviously tell. And uh, even more so in the last few years, but a lot of those years probably did it wrong, like 95% of the people in the weight room do it wrong. And so all of this stress placed on my shoulder. So about five years ago, I finally walked up in Dr. Johnson's office and telling him, it feels like somebody has jabbed a Phillips head screwdriver in my shoulder. And so he says to me, I will always remember this. Okay, well, so if it starts keeping you up at night, or waking you up, then we probably need to do something about it. And I just told him, I'm like, look, man, we are way past that because I am up at night in pain. So I got to go and meet Dr. Greco. David's just, who all in here has met Dr. Greco? Look at this. I'm telling you, folks. See, Dr. Greco isn't just like a shoulder guy in town. People come from other states for Dr. Greco to do your shoulder surgery. Dr. Greco sent me to have an MRI. So I wind up in Dr. Greco's office, and he pulls up my MRI on the screen, which just looks like, I don't know, mud or something to me. But he's showing me, you know, very clearly. You see this? This is your labrum, and you'll see there's a slight tear here. And then he starts showing me all the scar tissue around this and telling me all the things that are wrong and then informing me and there could be other things that we just won't know until we get in there which that's always great to hear but so now let me say this you're going to say well hey could I go do some more rehab or physical therapy you can it's a free country but it won't do any good Um, Dr. Johnson he's done everything that he can to help you or else he wouldn't have sent you to me so here's what we're going to do and, and this is what he said to me. I have a 100% success rate. Did he tell you that? I have a 100% success rate. So we're going to go in. We're going to clean that thing out. You're going to do five weeks of physical therapy, and you're going to be good as new. Okay, let's do it. And I will be honest, I am definitely not as good as new, but I am way better than I was before. But so now let's go back to the MRI for a second. The MRI very clearly showed me I had a problem. Actually, it didn't clearly show me, but it clearly showed him, and he explained it all to me. The MRI very clearly exposes you have a problem. Here's what's wrong, but it has no ability to fix it, does it? Because I could have said, you know what, Dr. Greco, I'm really not sure you're looking at things correctly there. Let's do this again. And I could have shelled out another $200 and gone and had another MRI. And we would have been looking at the same thing and I wouldn't have been any better. Could have had 14 more. 
and, and it wouldn't have done anything to help me. Why? Because the MRI is the diagnostic, but it's not the cure. It can show me where I'm broken, but it can't do anything to fix me. The surgeon is the only one who can fix what's wrong with my shoulder. Now, go back with me to the law for a minute. The law can reveal to you and me all day long where we're broken and where we need healing and where we need repair, but the law can do absolutely nothing to fix us because the law is the diagnostic. It's not the cure. Jesus is the cure. God gave us the law so that it sits there and we put our life up next to it and we're able to see very clearly through the power of the spirit, I am broken and in need of repair. I, I am messed up. I am sinful. And regardless of how hard I try, I can't seem to get this MRI to look any better. And God says, well, and that's why I'm sending my son because he's going to fix it for you. Jesus is the cure. So understanding that and knowing I'm in a room with a whole lot of people who probably would say, I believe that. Jesus is the cure. Absolutely. It, it begs the question then, why are there still so many people, sometimes even us, who claim to be followers of Christ, claim that uh, his blood has covered our sin, that the Lamb of God took my place, his blood poured out, my sin erased, and yet I keep going on living like I'm sick. Why are there many of us who claim to follow Christ and yet we keep walking outside of the hope, outside of the joy, outside of the peace and satisfaction that Jesus can bring? Why is that? Let me tell you why. It's because we keep going back to the scan. We keep going back to the diagnostic for the cure. Now, mentally, we don't do that because you, you, all of us in here who are Christians would say, no, I don't believe that. I believe that Jesus and Jesus alone is it. And we do believe it. But the problem is at some point in my day or my week or my month, something happens and I go, oh man, I have messed up again. I did it. God is gonna be so hacked and, and I begin believing that, that God's love for me is somehow based on my performance. And I don't realize that in believing that, what I am affirming is the cross actually didn't pay it all. We have to change the lyrics, which would be really unpoetic. Jesus paid most of it. Just not that good of a song, Right? But we, we live like that's what we believe, like somewhere along the line, we actually have something to do with it. And we keep going back to the diagnostic, like we can live up to that and going maybe, maybe, maybe. But we keep falling radically short. The law just keeps on revealing you're not good enough. You can't live up to this standard on your own. It's not going to happen. And, and we keep believing, but maybe just one more diagnosis, maybe. And God is saying, no, you just need the cure. That's it. 
A few years ago when I was at the Verge conference, Jeff Vanderstelt spoke about this, but from a little bit of a different angle. And I'd like for you to hear what he has to say this morning. To a young man who got stuck in a pattern of ongoing sin in the area of pornography, and, and he, he came to me one day and he told me about it, and I said, let me ask you, when you continue to go back into this sinful pattern, what happens to you? Like when you go looking at this stuff and what happens? He said, man, I'm full of guilt, I'm full of shame. And I said, I said, do you believe that the cross was sufficient, that Christ died once for all, one time? He doesn't need to die over and over again for you. And uh, he said, well, yeah, I do. And I said, well, then let me ask you, at the point of your sin, how long does it take you to get to the foot of the cross and worship Jesus for the fact that he died for that sin? He's like, man, it takes me two or three days at times. He said, so for two or three days when you're away from the cross, who is getting all the uh, worship, all the dependency, all the, the, the focus? He said, it's me. And I said, so do you understand that the very thing that led you into the sin of pornography, you're now trusting to lead you to grace? In other words, you're actually thinking that trusting in yourself is going to get you free from sin. But that's the very thing that got you into sin in the first place, was trusting in yourself. I said, so what do you do? He said, I beat myself up. I said, so in other words, you believe you have to hang on a cross for what you've done. You believe you have to pay for it because the cross was not sufficient enough for you. I said, it was sufficient enough. Why not at the point at which you looked at this stuff, you just get on your knees and go, thank you, God. You forgave me for what I just did. Jesus, you died for this. And he's like, man, I don't know. I said, why don't you do that before you look at the stuff? Like, the stuff I'm about to do, Jesus, I praise you for forgiving me for what I'm about to do. You died for this. I'm so thankful. He goes, if I did that, I wouldn't sin. I go, I know that's the point. Because the Bible says that grace teaches us to say no to sin. Right? When you see how amazing and scandalous the grace of the cross is, you don't want to sin anymore. You want to cling to the cross. You want to love Jesus. You want to worship him. You want to say, nobody does this. There's only one who's worthy of praise. It's Jesus Christ. It's good news. And some of you need this good news today. You need to stop groveling. You need to stop beating yourself up. You need to stop living in regret. You don't need to do that anymore. One already paid. Don't put yourself on a cross today. To a young man who got stuck in a... The, the basis of the legalist, the Judaizers, the Jews, their arguments was fear. Fear that people are just going to run crazy and live in sin. But, but here's the thing. We don't stop sinning in order to fix the problem. We don't stop sinning so that the problem is solved. We walk in victory over sin because the problem has already been solved. It's already been taken care of by Christ. Done. Period. We don't change our behavior, or let's use the same words. We don't modify our behavior so finally we fall in line with what God says we're supposed to do, and God finally says, I am finally happy with you. No, our behavior changes because the Spirit of God indwells us and transforms how we think and how we live. The law of the Spirit of life has set us free. The law, as Paul says in Romans 8, the Spirit has come and done what the law could not do. 
what the Judaizers, the legalists wanted the law to do, Jesus came and said, it can't do it. Only I can. Only I can. But remember what we said even a couple of weeks ago, when you reject the salvation that Christ brings, you're rejecting Christ himself. Because that is the gospel. But now let's finish this morning by addressing their argument about you can't just throw out the law or abandon it. Well, nobody said that you needed to. Jesus never said that. In fact, hey, Pharisees, if you'd have listened, listened, listened long enough, you'd actually heard Jesus say, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. It's all about me. I came to fulfill it. And so we don't abandon it. We understand that through the power of the Spirit, that that law, that it still reveals to us the pathway that God intends for life. And so how I love my, my spouse, how I raise my children, how I uh, love my neighbor, how I treat my coworker, how I somehow radically love and pray for my enemy. All those things change when I really believe the gospel that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And because of that, I begin like David in Psalm 23, I begin longing to walk in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I don't get up every day and go, man, I better walk in paths of righteousness or God's going to be mad at me. I'm already in trouble. As Jeff said, it's not the fear of the law. It is the absolute scandalous grace of God that overwhelms me and causes me to say, how can I not live for him? What else is there to live for? I'd like to finish this morning by sharing the gospel with you. Is that okay? Because I think, I think that we've got a whole room full of people here who we've all heard the gospel and we believe the gospel, but maybe we're not talking about the gospel enough. Maybe we're not voicing it. Maybe we're not being overwhelmed by that radical scandalous grace the way that we once were. But also let me preface with this, everything I'm about to say, I've stolen from Paul. So I don't want to plagiarize or anything. Every one of us, all of us, every single person in this room, every single person on the planet, all of us have sinned and we fall short of God's standard. Every single one of us have sinned. And I have to be honest with you and tell you that within the gospel, there's like this morsel of bad news. And here it is. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wage, the penalty, the price of that sin is death. Death. Not grounding, not lashings, not a 10-minute lecture, death. But see, understanding the bad news brings us to the conclusion of, I am desperately in need of some good news. 
Here it is. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And and the thing that makes that love even more radical is understanding that God did all of this, that Christ did this while we were still sinners. There wasn't like this window in time where all of us somehow got our act together for a few minutes. and We were like, hey, we're good, Jesus. And he was like, okay, you got me. I'll do it. Nope. Completely in the midst of our sin and rebellion, Christ died for us. And because of this, now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Zero. It's over. It's lifted. It's done away with. It's gone. And so understanding this, please know that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, understand that Jesus doesn't want just your mental assent of, yeah, I think that's probably possible and happened. Yes. No, he's saying, I want your life. And and in return, I'm actually going to raise you to new life. Because even if you're unaware of it, you are dead in your sin. But I'm going to breathe new life into you. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But please don't ever at any moment forget that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It's not by anything that you've ever done or will ever do. So that you and I don't even have a window of opportunity to think that, We could boast about anything. Here's what we can boast in. Jesus Christ came, lived, died, rose, and has given us life. That's all we need. Friends, that's the gospel. Do you believe it? Are we living like we believe it? Are are we living our life constantly going back to the diagnostic and going, man, I'm such a screw up. We all are. We are all sinners in need of a savior. The cure has come and the cure is what you need. I want us to wrap up this morning to close in, in walking through the gospel prayer again. And I want to teach you some more of it as well. This morning, we're going to pray. Father, I believe that in Christ, there is nothing I can do that would make you love me more. And there is nothing I have done that makes you love me less. And we're also going to pray an acknowledgement, Lord, your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. Let me ask you to bow your head. Would you pray that this morning? Father, I I believe today that in Christ, because of what Jesus has done, there is nothing I can do that would make you love me any more than you you do already. And Lord, there is nothing I have ever done 
that will make you love me less. And maybe this morning you need to pray, Lord, please lead my heart to the place of believing that. And then would you also pray, Father, bring my heart and my life to the place where I truly believe that your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. Holy Spirit, we just ask you to speak to our hearts in this moment. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. If you're here today and and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, and yet you feel something drawing you in, that's because we've been praying for you that God would already be working in your heart to draw you near. And in just a couple minutes, when we stand together to sing. Some of our pastors, our elders, our leaders are going to be in the back at the tables. They would love to talk with you, to pray with you. We would love for more than anything for you to meet Jesus Christ today. If you need to come to the steps or the foot of the cross and pray, please come. Lord Jesus, in these moments, we just proclaim you are King of kings, Lord of lords. You are the Lamb of God. Your name is above all names. You're the only one worthy of our praise. Let's stand together and worship. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.